A very good welcome, everybody, to Tech City All-Stars. I'm your host, Ross Stewart, and every week I'm going to be bringing you a wonderful interview from one of the world's best entrepreneurs and startup founders. Our goal at Tech City All-Stars is to provide up-and-coming entrepreneurs from all around the world with as much free information as possible from the world's most brilliant startup founders. We know just how hard it can be to start a business and even more so to get in front of people. So if you're struggling or want someone to talk to, please do reach out and we'll see how we can help you. And if you do have a startup business plan, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Tech City All Stars. Please just drop me a message and attach your business plan. Now, today's guest I'm absolutely privileged to introduce to you is a super chap. His name is Ian Smith, and he's got a wonderful story to tell and some super hot tips. Ian is the CEO and founder of Gospel Technology. He was the entrepreneur behind Butterfly Software, an analytics platform acquired by IBM in 2012. Ian started Gospel three years ago, and it's just been backed by Salesforce Ventures and AI Ventures. And without further ado, here's my interview with Ian Smith. Welcome to Tech City All-Stars. Tech City All-Stars. So let's lead straight in. Could you tell us a little bit about Gospel Tech? Particularly interested in hearing about the funding round you've recently done yeah. with Local Globe, Salesforce, and AI Ventures. Yeah, I so understand. yeah, all of those guys are on the cap table. Uh, we did a like an A round last September, September 18, uh, which is nearly a year ago. I'll show you how quickly time goes. Uh, especially when you're extremely busy. Uh, fortunate that was led by uh, Roger Ehrenberger, IA Ventures, who's having some great outcomes at the moment, uh, seeing companies through to that eight, 10 year cycle. Uh, and yet Salesforce, who were their first blockchain technology investment, yep. uh, super helpful. They, like Salesforce were like, you know, they totally pioneered SaaS into enterprise. I think they, if there's any company that kind of changed the dynamic on the way large companies consume uh, you know, technology and services, Salesforce was probably the one. It's, it's an honor to have them uh, support us in our journey at Gospel. Mm. Okay, so before we deep dive into um, the fundraising element of mm. uh, what you've gone through, tell me about uh, how it all started for you. Tell me about the journey. How far back? All the way back. All the way. I, like, I, I, what I would say is I think philosophically people don't get it one day and think they're gonna start a business or be an entrepreneur. I think that it comes from, you know, compound and aggregate experience over a period of time because mm. I think that gives you the confidence in, in whatever validated you idea how, your, your idea is uh, I mean I <clears throat> you know I I started off as a, a research geologist for British Antarctic Survey yeah. so we were down like, in the South Seas on uh, the James Clark Ross uh, doing you know really interesting analysis of environmental impact uh, but you know, it was kind of like that mid '90s, late '90s, where tech was proliferating everywhere. It was like pre-bubble, so you know, governments were spending huge amounts of money on technology to kind of change the way they could they could do you know research, specifically in the field I was in. Uh, I ended up running this uh, an IBM computer system on the ship, uh, and uh, you know, did a tour. Realized that you know I didn't want to spend. Uh, a huge amount of time on oil rigs or on icebreakers. Uh, and when I got back to the UK, I kind of looked, you know, I, was, I think there was something called JobServe back then. I don't even know if that still exists, but I kind of searched on JobServe for this technology that I worked on, uh, this IBM system. And it turned out that uh, I ended up uh, being part of the team that built the first commercial internet banking platform for HSBC. And that was on this like cutting edge technology, which obviously public funded uh, you know, organisations like British Antarctic already had access to, and it was kind of proliferating into, uh, you know, private uh, organisations, and we kind of built, you know, the first proliferation of HTTP connected, uh, you know, data. Uh, pretty, pretty exciting times, and then obviously 2009. So, what did you study at university uh, to get you geology and maths? No, just geology. I was no, a terrible mathematician. No coding. No, no, I. I you know, I have a, I mean, you know, I see what the our development teams can do, and I can can see how, you know, the application of code has, mm. has come a long way, certainly in the last, you know, ten years. But I've, it's kind of one of those things that I have huge respect for, and I have a good architectural understanding of. But I've never been a, I've never had the, 
you know, mental model to be a fantastic coder. I think it takes kind of great patience and, you know, a really, a very explicit understanding of, you know, quite detailed technology. It's, uh, you know, I, I can respect it, but it's not something that is well within my remit. I prefer like architect things. I think architect's probably a good word. So you, but you have a good understanding of all the technical principles. Yeah, I think it's very different now to what, what it was back then. You know, we have, there's been phenomenal development in access to code. In fact, Local Globe, who are, you know, again, one of our seed uh, investors, they've, they actually invest in businesses who are creating object orientation around code so even kids can start coding. Mm. And, you know, it's the, the coding's very different now to what it was like back in, you know, early 2000s. There's all sorts of tools and libraries and, and uh, things that accelerate value, which is, you know, which is phenomenal for, you know, people who have techno ideas who want to apply technology to because it means the like the barrier to entry of the tech organization against a business problem or a world problem is much lower than it was back then. So, you know, fantastic pioneering that's gone on and it will continue to go on. Uh, but it, I think it's a good time to be, you know, using technology to fix problems. So you don't necessarily need to know how to code. No. So would you say you're mm. more of a leader visionary? It's very difficult really because I think that, you know, a CEO or a organizational leader, it can kind of fit into many different areas, you know, and I think there are tradi traditional, you know, product CEO, visionary CEO, kind of, you know, what I've found is no matter what you start off as, you quickly have to adapt and change and kind of, you know, be part of everything. I, you know, I would, I would kind of argue that what has been the driving force behind certainly this business and my previous business was a vision of how your technology could solve a challenge. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is, and, and vision can motivate people, and it can begin a journey, and you know, it's very exciting when you're in the, like the, the, the context of vision, uh, but like very quickly, you know, without you know, detailed execution, uh, you, you, you're not gonna get beyond that two to three year horizon where people expect to see traction. So like, one thing I would say is that in my first business, very fortunate to, uh, co-found that with a guy called Tom Hughes. He was a real detailed thinker when it came to the sales process and go to market. I think we had a you know we had a good outcome because it was the balance. So can um, I just stop you there? Yeah, so sure, you went sure. from um, you went from on the rigs. Yeah, yeah. Was, so yeah, I, I did the HSBC thing, uh, and and it was fantastic time to be in technology. Uh, yeah. as, as kind of like what happened in the late nineties was people came to the realization that like technology got to start delivering on its premise. Yeah. Uh, not just be phenomenally funded because it's exciting bubble. So I believe you know the tech bubble was like it. It was bad for organisations who weren't delivering, but what it it drove like a leanness. So as you went into the early thousands, you know it was really focused on real value coming from investment, and uh, that was a great time to be in it because we were you know pioneering lots of new applications of infrastructure. So, you know, I was working on, you know, I went from internet banking to uh, the first kind of algorithmic trading platforms in over in the city. Yeah. So we were, it was the first time we were kind of moving towards digital trading in memory. So high speed uh, uh, transactions, you know, that, that's like proliferated, you know, now to, you know, machine learning and all these kind of cool technologies. Uh, but through that, that, that decade, it was very much around, you know, you went from technology and infrastructure being the differentiator to, uh, you know, as, as, you, as a cloud came along and a lot of like uh, commoditization that came, the value started to become from the data and the information businesses had. Yeah. So I had, so I kind of, in like 2008 maybe, I think it, yeah, it was, I mean like, my God, like over 10 years ago now, uh, you know, I founded a company with Tom called Butterfly and that was really around, you know, how do you give a large organization the ability to classify, uh, you know, uh, find out where their the valuable information is across all of these different like silos of infrastructure, and then, you know, analyze that and then migrate them to that next generation of architecture, which may include the cloud or, you know, distributed systems. And, uh, you know, we really got stuck into it with that. So just to we really break, got stuck in, yeah. Just to break this down for mm -hmm. our listeners, were you still in employment when you started Butterfly? No. So you, you took the leap. Yeah. So I was found in, a business partner. Oh, well. No, no. So 
it was, I mean, the, start, the starts are always quite messy, I think. There's never a clean start. So, and I, I think if people are founding companies, yeah. uh, they can have like limited experience. But what I would say is that uh, in both my experiences, uh, it's, it's never pure and clean at the start. And you've got to kind of accept that and not let that kind of stop you from moving forward. Uh, you know, you know, and you know, Butterfly. You know that we were. I was, I was actually working in the city at Deutsche Bank. Mm. I was actually uh, like a global architecture consultant. So we were going, you know, out to Australia and like the US, kind of building up, yeah, like this next generation infrastructure. Uh, and I was really enjoying it, but I kind of realised that, you know, uh, I kind of I felt like I was getting into the big business hamster wheel. Mm. Where you know you you've been you know you've worked so hard for a long time and then you're into a situation where you know the organisations that you're working for uh, then 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 you just like into this the organisation realises your value so it's like okay I'm going to optimise the use of this resource and for me I was like okay like I want to keep learning I want to keep trying new things so I just had this realisation I was walking over I was working in the city on Bishopsgate I was living in like Shad Thames in the south. On the mm. south of the river, I was walking up the bridge one night. I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. Okay. I want to be in control of what I'm doing. And I had this, like, literally this moment of realization that I just like saw the next 20 years working in a big organization, like really enjoyable, amazing people. But I just like, I was like, I've got to get out of this. I've got to try and take control of how my time is going to be used. Yeah, so this is what I really want to touch on. Yeah. Because a lot of people go through this and they look into the future, like you just said, and they, and they see you know, a future they don't really want. However, starting your own company is quite a risky business. 95% of all startups fail. Whereas you seem to hit the ball out of the park at first attempt. Mm, it may look like that from the outside. I think that uh, if there's anything I'm like, especially being a parent, is not to judge other people's decisions. Like yeah. staying in one organization, building your career, building phenomenal networks and joining is a great opportunity and outcome, right? Moving between organization changes, that's great too. Like, so, like, I don't, you know, anybody who thinks that entrepreneurship or permanent careers or any, like, nothing's better than anything else. It's really about, does the individual feel fulfilled in what they're doing? Are they, like, for me, it was always, am I continuing to learn and grow? Yeah. Uh, and learning and growing is always about discomfort. Like, I've always felt, like, irrelevant of kind of, like, objectives or, you know, financial, you know, compensation. Like, if you're not uncomfortable somehow, you're probably in, 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 a, in a moment that's, that's kind of like, you're, you're optimised, but it's not, it's not pushing you, it's not challenging, you're not learning. Mm. So, like, whenever I, in my life, whenever I've been in that situation from a career or vocational perspective, for some reason it's a trigger for me to step out of it. Like, I always want to step into a room full of people who are cleverer, more articulate, more able for me to then hopefully be dragged up by them to be challenged in that environment. Mm. Which, like, I think that if you don't, like, if you're, if you're not wired, like, in like a weird masochistic way that you want to continue to put yourselves in environments of discomfort to see if you can test yourself to learn and grow, probably starting companies is not the right thing to do mm. because it's like constantly like that. Large job, large organizations, large job, they can be they can be challenging too, right? Just in a different way. Yeah. So no pain, no gain. Absolutely. And well actually as entrepreneurship, lots of pain, little gain for a long time. Yeah. So talk about the the amount of time it takes. So you start mm. a new company with your business partner. Butterfly, yeah, there was yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what's the what's the first kind of say um, the first sprint like? So zero to ten weeks. Is, it, is that all just horrendously painful? You've got no certainty whatsoever? Let, let me just give you the context. So, Butterfly, as a business, I've realised with the knowledge that I've learned since, was a very focused niche piece of technology. It right. was ex exceptionally high value for a very small market aperture. So, large organisations with challenges around protected data, you know, that needed to transform them to a cloud product, you know, you could very quickly qualify exactly, and I, I think this is kind of important for any business, uh, high focused qualification means you can move very quickly with confidence because you're not going to continually validate in the market you're addressing. 
and, and you know, Butterfly, you know, just, just to give you context, you know, that got up to 40 people. We exit to Ivan in three years. Founding to exit so who's, 36 months. Who was building it for you? Who's, just you started building it? Yeah, so me and Tom, and there was a guy called Craig who co we kind of co-founded it, and we built it all three years and sold it to IBM. Yeah. So what was that like, exiting Butterfly? Well, when did you first hear of the interest? I think what happened was we... So, like, again, I mean, funnily enough, I'm going to start talking about things that happen on Butterfly. I should be applying them to my own business now. But yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what we did was, it was a very focused value proposition for a highly qualified customer base. And, uh, you know, we're just focused on a very tight market need. And we just nailed it better than anyone else. Mm. We just nailed it. And it wasn't about big vision and wider scope. It was all about there's a very niche need for large customers with backup data who want to move them from tape to cloud or whatever. Let's just nail the analysis and migration of that need. And I think that what, what, what it drove was, was like, and I've learned in, in, in gospel, it's like different, but we had like absolute alignment all of the time because it was so explicit what we were doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we came to a point like two, two years in yeah. where, you know, we had enabled IBM to do phenomenal things around uh, uh, market growth of their products because they were using Butterfly to accelerate their traction. And uh, we had other big vendors coming towards us like Symantec and HP who were kind of like, okay, we want you to build Butterfly to enable customers to move to HP Cloud or Symantec technology. And that created this market tension so there was quite an organic process, the, the interest. Because it was like super focused, enabling a big partner to be successful. And we, we started to create some phenomenal customer journeys. I mean, yeah. at the end of all of this, right, irrelevant of kind of the, the, the journey or the people, it was always about amazing customers who were deriving huge cost savings and value using Butterfly to accelerate the analysis and migration of their data. So like, it's, it's very easy, I think, in startups to get overexcited by, you know, the, uh, the, the academic and, and the modeling. But ultimately, if you've got a very tight, qualified client base who are having a fantastic, you know, cost-saving and technology experience from your technology, good stuff's gonna happen. <laughs> Good. And what, what happened to us was was the customer traction and the money we were saving, you know, like there were big customers like John Deere, we were saving them tens of millions of dollars by moving them to much more efficient technology. Did they come to you, by the way? It was indirect. Yeah. We sold through IBM. So we were selling through organizations with, you know, 5,000 salespeople, you know, all of the enterprise customers ready to go. And that is the power of the large organizations. They have a phenomenal reach and network. Mm. So if you can build a technology that's valuable to the, like good business is always where everybody, everybody uh, benefits, right? So, you know, the indirect partner, the end customer, Butterfly just hit this moment in time where kind of cloud was coming along and data was becoming kind of the thing. Uh, and, you know, two and a half years in, uh, we had other large vendors who were now uh, want us to scale our technology. We knew that was gonna cost a lot more money because we bootstrapped the whole business. Wow. We, we took any external funding. And we kind of came to this point where, are we gonna partner with other large technology providers? Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, we were kind of went and spoke to our you know, late, early Series A investors probably. Within a month we had a term sheet. Uh, obviously we talked to IBM about what we were doing and that term sheet uh, basically initiated uh, a quite a rapid process of acquisition into IBM. Okay, what's that like? I mean, these organizations are extremely well-oiled machines. Yeah. And we were a tiny little acquisition compared to the kind of things IBM do. Uh, and they threw all of the, you know, diligence and process yeah. uh, at that. Because you know, large organizations can't afford to be slapdash with their legal and compliance approach. Uh, it was... You know, when we turned, it was funny because we, we were like a 40 person company. We turned up to the, like the diligence interviews in Armonk and like IBM HQ. And I think we took half the company, like 20 people. And I think there were 300 people from IBM there. 
So like they were outnumbers and diligence, like you know, five to one. Really? Was, yeah, it was. So this is the bit that no one hears about. No, well, <laughs> yeah, it's probably because it's really highly confidential. Okay. Uh, no, no, I, I, I think that. I mean, I would be more than happy saying that IBM do the acquisition process extremely well. Yeah, yeah. You know, they do it at scale. And, you know, in my tenure at IBM, three years, you know, I was part of the process of buying two companies, both over a billion dollars in you know, acquisition value. You know, they, they, they do it with great uh, care and empathy for the founders. Mm. Uh, and they do it with great formal legal process. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, it's, a very, it's a big learning experience. I mean, IBM have just acquired Red Hat for nearly 40 billion. I think the biggest software acquisition ever been done. You know, it's phenomenal. Uh, yeah. Phenomenal ability to do that at that scale, and nobody can appreciate the scale until you. Yeah, I think you're in it. Were you just sat across from a couple of lawyers? No, no, we went through so technical interviews, uh, obviously financial drill down. I mean, there's like there was I think three days in a facility in uh, New York State where you know we had you know 10, 12 hours back to back, you know, interviews, diligence processes, documentation. It's uh, yeah, these things are the real deal. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Once um, that contract's over the line, did you stay on at the company to sort of uh, help it sort of see it through its incubation period? Of course, yeah. Look, I, I you know, I, I think that any acquisition relies on a, you know, focused transition. Mm. And it's as much about the people, I think, as is the technology. Uh, you know, we, we were quite scrappy, we were a scrappy startup. Mm. In a, we actually, our office was a old uh, stables near Maidenhead. Yeah. And there was this hilarious day. It was actually a stables in a garden center, believe it or not, we were all kind of like really? sitting on top of each other. Yeah. And then, and, 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 and uh, you know, it was all like, our entire contract with them was all like a handshake and it was all friendly and all sort of stuff. And I'll never forget, uh, there was a day this like big white truck turned up and a huge box came out and in it was this like four foot by four foot glass and perfectly milled steel IBM logo that they, uh, they screwed onto this old stable block in a garden centre in Maidenhead and uh, I like, like the, the, the Lord somebody who kind of owed the land come over and oh, oh, oh it's an IBM site now and, and you know it was when IBM acquire they all like there's a process they follow mm -hmm. and it was uh, yeah phenomenal experience but like for me you know the you know the ability like I loved what we built I loved the team I loved the technology the op like and what I would say to any any entrepreneur who gets to or a business owner who gets to a point of being acquired or not you need to think very carefully to what you want because uh, you know you you lose control and you're effectively mostly being acquired uh, to scale. Uh, you know, large organizations buy uh, clever technology to either, you know, a cynic sometimes says that they, you know, shelve them and close them down, uh, but if I wasn't, it was to scale it globally. And then you kind of, end, you're going away from this scrappy 40-person direct drive, you know, uh, organization to uh, scaling, you know, very quickly, I was kind of indirectly working with 4,000 people. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know you've got to look after your people. You've got to look after your team. You've got to look after the the vision of the of the technology and the business. But in no uncertain terms, you are now part of a bigger machine, and that can be good. Or I can understand why some people may get frustrated. But I saw the entire three year kind of retention phase out because I loved being at IBM and I enjoyed having access to such large, complex clients. Just before we move on to gospel, yeah. um, were there any points in those three years when you thought, hang on a minute, A, we've got a time pressure because someone else is trying to do this, or just, you know, did you have any fears? I was terrified all of the time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's yeah, good for no, people to hear because, you know, everybody's, entrepreneurship yeah, is... You're terrified all the time. Yeah. Terrified all the time. Uh, uh, I mean, ultimately, you've got to remember as a founder or a leader of a startup, you have you know, the people, the HR challenges, you've got the technology challenges, you've got clients, you've got relationships, partners, then you've got all the admin and the infrastructure, the offices, the, everything, right? And you're thinking about all of it and it's somehow ensuring that it doesn't drive you crazy uh, because you know, your focus is retaining a great experience for your customer 
working out where your next customers are going to come from whilst not impacting on your existing customer and partner relationships, yeah. uh, making sure your team doesn't break as you go through that process. Uh, you know, there's so many elements that keep you awake at night uh, and, and it's the same again. I mean, the irony of all of this was I went that through building that company, exit to IBM, a fantastic time at IBM, exited, started gospel, uh, and it's like doing it again for the first time. Did you have a rest in between? Uh, I'd, uh, I had 12 months. Six, 12 six months, six, 12 months, yeah, six, 12 months. Do you mind me asking what you got up to? I don't really remember. You know, I think that, uh, you know, selling an organized, selling a company to a large company like IBM, I think there is an element of like a status of shock that you go into. So you're just like, <sighs> yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. I, and it goes on for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you kind of got to, you know, find your identity. You've got to find your, like, reason to go again. Because you must uh, have been running on adrenaline for three years, and yeah. then all of a sudden get that tap gets turned off. Yeah, uh, it's <laughs> it's a big. And I like again, like for people in these early phases, if there's anything I've learned with gospel is like you don't want to try and run too fast too early, yeah. because you know. Uh, especially when you have a wider addressable market and it's mm. not so niche and I've learned that this time that you just you're physically and mentally unable to sustain uh, that level of intensity and it takes intensity to kind of believe in what you do the conviction to get going but there does have to be a when you when you're on a longer journey yeah. you need to kind of map it out a little bit more sensibly to give you the ability to keep going at a healthy rate yeah uh, so you started with the problem. Again, super lucky at IBM. I ended up being part of something called the Board of Advisors, which was a set of technology people in IBM who were speaking to lots of large companies. Yeah. So I was speaking to, if you think of all the big banks, manufacturing companies, aerospace companies, we were talking to extremely, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, there were people at the, at the front end of business, CIOs, CTOs who were struggling with the latest data protection or storage or cloud or IoT or machine learning, or these new like uh, fringes of technology. And I spent a good year talking to them and listening, uh, uh, listening, listening to what the challenges were, listening to the gaps on what IBM's portfolio was. So you're um, already plotting your next move. Plotting's maybe the wrong word, but I, was, I think I was always thinking, I've never seen myself as a successful series, like I just don't think about myself like that. I kind of, like Butterfly was a great experience that I really enjoyed uh, and I wanted it again. Uh, and, uh, but there was a deep fear of, it's like I used to speak to people about the first album syndrome, there's like bands come up to do a great first album, it smashes everything, everybody loves their music and then somehow they can never follow up. Okay, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of built this thing, exited, everybody's amazed. Do I really want to do it again at the risk of failure? Because if I, if I risk it all again and I fail, then that will be, will that be like overwhelming when it comes to the way people look at me? So, but then but there was this point where I just like, uh, I had my first, uh, my first child at the time and I kind of, I had this horrible vision of myself sitting in the corner at like, at, at uh, like birthdays and Christmases talking about the butterfly story. Mm -hmm. Like even I was starting to get bored of it by then, so I thought, I need some new material. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's like, again, there's so many different like personal triggers and motivations, as well as, you know, there's a, there's a business need. And, and the need at the time was, I believe that, you know, if data is becoming the, you know, the, the currency of business, whether it be in such property or, you know, information, if, if information is going to drive analytics and AI and organizations are going to become increasingly collaborative and leverage distributed architectures, so all of these kind of mega trends, then there is a need to have much greater data security and trust uh, outside of the traditional data center. Uh, and that's what we kind of built, built Gospel for. So we're in an elevator. Oh. You've got 30 seconds. Oh, this is terrible. I, oh, no. And I'm the biggest venture capital firm in the world oh. for your series. Well, I probably, unfortunately, had this. I probably had them all say no to me at some point over the last two years. How about instead of selling it to them, sell it to me who is interested in the space. Well, Sounds interesting, but I'm pretty much 
uh, I have no idea. So we actually talk about Gospel as like a distributed database for sensitive data. Yeah. with the ability to retain control even if you give that data to someone else. And uh, we've took a bottom-up developer approach. We have, uh, you know, we've partnered recently with Google and, you know, Google are taking us into the developer groups and we're really understanding exactly where the rubber hits the road, where companies are trying to stand up a database in the cloud, give you some central permissioning, try and work out encryption, work out how they have a log to make sure it's compliant with local regulation and kind of share that information with the companies and not lose that data or lose the value of the information. And, you know, that, that so I guess in a really circular way, what I'm saying is the, the visionary elevator pitch gets people quite excited, yeah. but, but you need to quickly be able to move to, okay, practically, like how do I understand what you're doing and what your technology is? And to do that, you need to use terms, you need to associate with technologies, things that are familiar. So there's a familiarity that we've built into our messaging. So even though we're using blockchain-based distributed secure database, you know, we're using words like database, we're, uh, we're kind of comparing it to familiar terms, knowledge that developers are using. And we've seen, and like if, you know, I hope that we continue to, and I hope this is valuable for other people who are kind of leading, you know, visionary organizations. We've seen a profound effect on traction. I founded Gospel because I believed in the power of blockchain. I read the 2008 Satoshi Nakamoto piece about Bitcoin and the underlying blockchain architecture to enable trusted pre and post state uh, authentication of a transaction, the execution of that transaction in an unsecured, trustless environment, and the a audit log of all transactions could be never affected by any of the participants. And those fundamental building blocks of architecture, for me, they just elegantly solved the problem of connecting different organizations' infrastructure to do business transactions. Mm. So, you know, back then, I thought, this is some sort of data, cloud data platform based on blockchain with you know, distributed encryption, and we're going to create a phenomenal kind of distributed storage platform to allow organizations to network with trust. And uh, then what happened was there was like this, this almost uh, like a gold rush to this like buzzword of blockchain. Mm. And we saw a lot of kind of noise uh, and people professing, and organizations professing that they'd solved this and solved that. And you Have know, you already started building at this point, or we had started. Yeah, we had started. What are you building it on? We started on Hyperledger because it was oh. the first uh, non-proof-of-work blockchain. The, the, what we went through is this hype cycle, uh, and, and very quickly, I think blockchain came a bit of an inhibitor uh, from because I think the buzz was kind of the heat had gone out of it because there was so much. You know, there, there were so yeah. many like fintech applications and there were these things called ICOs where people were creating tokens that supposedly represented value and they were raising horrendous amounts of money and really with no proven traction or product market fit. And, you know, for me, I just want Like, we're a pretty old school enterprise technology play, uh, you know, and now we're obviously going with bottoms up and we have digital experience partnered with, you know, the, the cloud providers. But I, I purposefully... So we started talking about blockchain and then quickly it was more about, okay, what, we've worked out what value we can bring, let's talk about that. Uh, and we talk about value and vision, and now, we're, now we've got products and technologies that we talk about that are enabled and unlocked through distributed ledger and distributed encryption and you know, the, the fundamentals of a consensus-based architecture. Just explain how that works um, a little bit more, uh, well, how, that, how that protects the data. Well, I can explain from a gospel perspective. Because what I would say is blockchain is such a high-level term. Like, I don't, you know, everybody's got a different kind of lens on it. Mm. Like, what I would say is there's a fundamental difference about what we're doing at Gospel and most other applications of enterprise blockchain. Is that, imagine like, uh, blockchain's consensus model was always about validating rights to the ledger. So if we were going to do a new transaction, all of the other participants are going to validate the, the integrity of that transaction that would allow it to be written and appended to this ledger, which is you know, sequentially hashed to ensure that you have a totally secure audit of all these transactions that have been appended. 
So gospel, we can take a different approach because what we said is what, what, what our thesis on, on value is that the actual, uh, if you think about the blockchain as a distributed storage or a distributed database, you put a lot of data in there Mm -hmm. It's totally opaque, it's encrypted, you can guarantee its integrity, you have access to all of those things. But what we've actually patent pending, uh, and what our kind of killer app is, we apply the consensus function to the read as well as the write. So, so the, the fundamental value of gospel is, I can have me and you as two organizations, yeah. or two, two participants in a network, yeah. and fundamentally to be driven in different ways, different you know, uh, priorities, different businesses, we can be competitive, it doesn't really matter. We can be, be driven by fundamentally different uh, philosophy, yeah. but we both have this, uh, we're, we're both connected to this network of data and information, and some of it's mine, some of it's yours, some of it's, some of it's shared. But nobody can see anything until we've set a rule that says cons we, we give consensus to decrypt yeah. a part of that data set and unlock it to a business process that we've agreed upon. So we could be competitive manufacturers, but we're sharing materials information, say, and then we're gonna, when we make a group order to, to be you know, economically more efficient for both of us, we, we don't decrypt or give access to any of our secret source or IP or our, own, but we do, the, the piece of information that allows us to create a trusted transaction in an essentially untrusted environment. And that's kind of the killer feature of gospel. The bigger the network of participants, the more valuable it becomes on the ability to unlock access to information across any border, uh, whether it be a systems border, or a ge geographic border, or some sort of security border. And you know, the challenge for us is that technology is pretty deep tech. Uh, it's difficult to demonstrate, difficult to surface, and we're starting to get there now. And it has many, many applications. But we've just we're, we've realised back to kind of the butterfly learning. You know, if you can highly qualify to large organize, international organisations who are data security conscious, who are handling information about people or things that are already on their early cloud adoption, then you know that person can have huge value from Gospel because fundamentally, Gospel allows organisations to store sensitive data in the cloud and share it with other companies without any fear of loss or breach. And you know, just changing again, coming to where people are with the problems has been really good for us because we've started to find, you know, a lot of organizations we can help. How many players are there in this space? Well, I think there's a lot of the big organizations approached it with a services method initially. So the IBMs, the Oracles, they kind of knew there was an ability to help customers kind of code things, you know, for specifically for them. Uh, and I think that that kind of business has fallen off as people have realized, well, how do you actually get some custom-built blockchain app into production. What we actually want is a, you know, a commercial offering that's enterprise-ready with support and stability and interoperability and all those things that large organizations need to you know, have robust, stable infrastructure. So we are a, you know, we're a product or platform provider. We've partnered with Google to deliver the cloud. And you know, uh, that's uh, pretty unique, I think, but we overlap other, like our database in Gospel is like very graph-like, so we, we similar to like Neo4j in like a graph database way, but we have obviously consensus on read. So I think that the application of blockchain architecture into sensitive data sharing, you know, I don't think, I would say we're probably unique or we're one of very few who are so focused now on that qualified use case. Uh, and you know, it's exciting, it's exact time, but to the point on fear and thinking, it's all, I'm always thinking, how do we keep ahead? How do we study, you know, uh, create and improve our customer experience and user experience to ensure that we continue to innovate and, and create this market? How do you find um, employing people? Are there enough blockchain developers around at the moment? I remember at one time there was definitely a dearth of them, or yeah. people were finding it hard to get hold of. Well, yeah, I. I mean, our engineering team is a fantastic team. Uh, they're not, we, you know, most of them have been built in-house. You know, we brought yeah. a few on from the original Deloitte blockchain team, actually, and they're still, as, still with us now, like two and a half years later. Uh, and a lot of the other guys are just really, and girls, really clever, hungry engineers who want to learn, who want to 
work with new technology or want to apply it to real value because people love to build something and see it deliver value. And you know, we've invested in training and knowledge sharing, and you know, we've struggled to be you know, no, we've struggled a little bit with some knowledge sharing because I think sometimes when you're building something, you want to protect it, you don't want to let people see it. It's a secret source. Let's hold it. Let's hold it back. Uh, I've realised in the last few months, like. Don't focus so much on your competition. Focus on sharing knowledge, focus on being open, focus on partnerships with your customers and being open about how things work. And again, that's something that's come to us in the last few months and it gets a profound effect on the relationships we're building with our clients. Mm. This is early technology, right? We've been, we've been on just under three years, this is early technology. Uh, and, and I think don't try to play ahead of where you are focus on building trusted relationships with your customers and partners and be open about you know how good some parts are maybe how some of it's in beta and that i think that openness can drive real feedback and that real feedback allows you to iterate and focus on the bits that need to be focused on and, and that's where businesses will uh, create their growth attraction for can we just go back to uh, the fundraising piece? Because for, for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's, it's quite daunting when they think about it. There's always an exit in mind, and they think, well, oh, gosh, I've just got to get the company started, let alone have an exit. Um, and what were the two or three things you learned from, from the fundraising experience? Uh, obviously, I am in the battle now, so we're always worrying and thinking and, and working out you know, financing. I mean, firstly, my advice would be to uh, try and bootstrap for as long as you can. Uh, mm. It forces a leanness and an efficiency which will define a culture of resourcefulness and it will drive a necessity to focus. Yeah. However, there is huge value in the power of experience, knowledge, networks of the investors. My first piece of advice would be to uh, post the bootstrapping point or the you know, financial efficiency, whether it's your own money or a couple of people who partner or you know, that friends and family phase, I think it would be called. And by the way, there are very efficient EIS and systems that allow, that I didn't even know about, that, that it's worth researching to get angels to invest that make it very, very efficient for them to invest in, in you know, organizations. Uh, what I would say is that the thing to focus on for me, uh, and I've certainly learned this uh, at Gospel is, you know, you're, you're building relationships with your investors. They're not just investors, they're on your cap table, they're part of your business. Yeah. They're your partners in the business. You're bringing your vision and your technology and your traction, they're bringing their experience, their networks, their support, uh, uh, and their financing. Now, my, my view would be, and there are different views on this, and I'm always open to other people's opinions, but I think in the seed phase, so like, you know, once you've put 100 grand in, and you kind of built your minimum viable, and you've got a couple of customers, and you're gonna try and build some, uh, you know, uh, small amount of revenue, but whatever it is, and there's an early scrappy kind of like, uh, you know, that founding phase. Yeah. The seed phase for me is about validation. It's about validating your ideas, your team, because you're always filled with doubt in those early phases, mm. in those early stages. Yeah. You know, there's always an element of doubt when you build something new. So if you can find a seed investor who's got the network and the experience to give you connectivity into practitioners and customers and partners and other, other investors and they themselves who can support your shaping of what you're doing to give you more confidence in its validity, that's hugely powerful. Okay, let me stop you there. So you had your MVP, you validated the idea, you've got the team, yeah. you're confident about going forward. How did you find a seed investor at that point? Right, so what I would say about seed investor, it's got to be geographically local. Yeah, I would say wherever you are based in the world, get a seed investor who's physically close because you want to see them, you want to spend time with them, you want the local network because that's where you're going to be hiring from, that's where you're going to be partnering, yeah. that's where you're probably first year customers are going to be within a certain distance of geography. So there is a, 
And again, this is my view. People may have different opinions. You know, there are pure digital cloud businesses who will have global reach on day one. But you know, from an enterprise technology perspective, uh, you know, there's an element of proximity, keeping people close. That's very helpful in my view, because yep. uh, of the iteration frequency. You may see those people in the early stages. And was it a case of picking up the phone to someone? Yeah. So I, I mean, we were fortunate. So how did we do? So we spoke to a number of people in London, uh, and you know, eventually we managed to traverse the network to a guy called Saul Klein at Local Globe, mm. uh, who's ex-Index. Yeah. Uh, you know, his father, Robin Klein's a legend in Europe around uh, venture. And, you know, meeting Saul was phenomenal. He had a guy who is a partner at Local Globe, I believe, called Remus Brett, who's actually done this. He'd sold a company to McKinsey. Absolute gentleman, mm. extremely uh, intelligent, but also wears the battle scars of founding, building, and exiting a company. And that level of empathy as actually doing it is extremely powerful. So we just found like natural chemistry, and uh, you know, that's seen around led by Low Globe, and we our angels followed on. It's important to get follow on as you go, build confidence. Uh, did you bother with a business plan? Did I? Uh, or did you just make the product? No, there's, there's, there's always a, I think you need to show that you're, uh, have an understanding at that stage of your go-to-markets, your addressable markets, and how you're going to commercialize what you've built. I think there's a need to be financially and fiscally aware. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, you know, there will be extremely intelligent, focused technology founders who just built some phenomenal piece of technology, probably have a disregard completely to but they built something that's so, you know, profound and groundbreaking they'll, they'll have a phenomenal success. So again, you know, I'm fairly pragmatic, so we try to touch on all of the elements to demonstrate that we were thinking at a business level. Diversity across these phases and states are what you know, companies and you know, investors like Low Globe are very good at spotting and, and good at traversing. So people shouldn't feel that they need to fit into a mold, but you know, they're gonna have to have an understanding of different elements of, of the organization. Okay, just one more on fundraising. What is your best-selling strategy for a founder? My, my guidance, as always, is to be as genuine and straightforward as you can be. Don't read a book or a blog or an, an article on Medium about this is what you need to be or do or look like or talk like because uh, you're immediately starting a relationship uh, with, uh, without authenticity mm. and, and, and you know my kind of view has always been authentic people are either gonna agree or disagree like it or not but the ones who do agree and like it you're on the right, trusted, solid, authentic footing for a successful relationship. Trying to be anything else other than genuine and what you really believe and how you see it, you, you, I, I, I kind of feel that's gonna catch up with you at some point. And I would say, you know, in my limited experience, that that's what you know, investors are looking for, authenticity and a genuineness to, uh, uh, for them to understand that you're very genuine, real about the problem you're looking to fix. Okay, if your company went bust and you lost everything, oh, Jesus. what would you do to get back on top? I don't know. <laughs> if I went bust, I lost everything. I've still got my kids. Yeah. I've still got the kids. They'll still love me, as long as I put on Peppa Pig and, you know. <laughs> I think, look, let me tell you, I, I, I think that uh, focus on your mates and your relationships and your family, <laughs> the business connections you build that are genuine because of empathy and care, they're gonna, I believe they will, uh, you know, outlast any specific business figure. Everybody wants to be successful. If you're not, focus on the relationships you've built, the things that you've learned, try and use it again. Got it. If you can get yourself out of bed. How do you design the perfect future for gospel? Slow, steady, incremental traction uh, and building and learning and building something better and better as we go. Uh, where the team is enjoying it and we're sustaining health and happiness. <laughs> uh, I think that is the perfect you know, uh, future. All right, let's fast forward 20 years into the technological future. Oh, wow. If you were to start the perfect company for that time, what would it look like? Oh, wow. But like, I mean, a lot of you people have a dystopian view of these things. If Space you believe, travel? It, uh, Space flights? Uh, 
If I was building... Probably living on Mars, right? I think I might be out of ideas for companies. <laughs> but this won't better work. Because uh, I always think you've got to have some kind of space station, which well, I, some I, kind of I'll hotel. Tell you, well, I'll tell you what I, what I believe. I think that, <clears throat> you know, I think that we're going into an era where we need to be much more sensitive to our environment. Mm. And, you know, we've, we've had phenomenal growth, global growth. If I was building a technology company today, which I am, <laughs> uh, it would be something that allows me to feel that my children and their children are somehow moving towards, you know, environmental sustainability. Okay. You know, through, through the application of technology, whether that be food or, you know, you know health, or, you know, whatever it is. What three golden nuggets of advice would you give to tomorrow's entrepreneurs? Uh, I think we're authentic, genuine. Yep. Genuinely believe and be authentic about what you do. Uh, two is, uh, I always think about grand design now. It's going to take a lot longer than you think, so don't rush it. Yeah. Uh, it will take longer, so plan for it taking longer. Uh, and I think the third one is uh, so authentic, time, what would I say? Look, I, you know, focus on the people. If you were to bottle up your je ne sais quoi for your kids, mm. uh, what would you say to them? Uh, well, I say to them every day, you know, calm down, don't yeah. run, you know, be overexcited. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, funnily enough, like when, as my kids are getting older, I do, and my, you know, partner, we see more of our, ourselves in them. Uh, I mean, it's funny with the kids because, you, you know, I want them to, I, they have a huge amount of opportunity, more than I had. Yeah. Uh, they have a huge amount of opportunity, but I think it, it, it can be a, like how I see it now, maybe as I'm getting a little bit older, I, I kind of see it maybe as a little bit overwhelming for kids these days. There's so much media and technology and opportunity and clubs and stuff. And like sometimes I think maybe less is more a little bit. It takes some time to be thoughtful. I mean, how you tell a three-year-old to be thoughtful, I'm not sure, but you know, don't rush around on the next latest, greatest thing. Just maybe, just try and be a, a little bit more thoughtful and not necessarily be so overwhelmed by all of this opportunity. Uh, maybe, maybe that's uh, a relevant thing to say, yeah. I don't know. No, nice, nice. Okay. Um, let's just say you sell gospel for two billion and you go all Elon Musk. <laughs> How would you save the world? How would I save the world? I try not to think like this. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, how would I say? I don't think money can save the world. I don't think money can save the world. I think money is probably doing the opposite of saving the world. I think coming back to that thing about empathy and people being a bit more thoughtful, you know, the world's getting, it's, it's quite a busy place, a lot of the places we are. And, and I just think that ultimately the savior or failure of, uh, you know, the world is in the hands of the many people who inhabit it. And I think that a very small incremental behavioural change to be slightly more empathetic and respectful of our environment, other people, would on aggregate make a huge, a huge change. Mm. Uh, I don't think some degree a couple of billion quid's going to have any effect whatsoever. You could buy part of the Amazon, couldn't you? And just and say, don't, don't, don't say this it. down. Yeah. yeah, as long as I didn't use a private jet to get there and back a few yeah. times. Yes, okay. Yeah. All right. And one, uh, thing, one thing I'd say that Elon has done, and I, I kind of like, is you know, the whole Mars thing, it's inspiring kids to look at science uh, and also, you know, uh, boys and girls and, you know, uh, are being inspired by visionary, uh, you know, people, you know, some craziness on Twitter and sort of thing, maybe not so good, but, you know, at least they're attempting to inspire the youth, uh, yeah. which I think is kind of, kind of an interesting concept. And it's raising aspirations, isn't it? It's, it's raising everyone's level of thinking yeah. as to what could be possible, yeah, what is possible. SpaceX is phenomenal. What you want SpaceX is Tesla. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, awesome. Best 10x hack? I'll tell you, seeing is believing with technology. I think that uh, focus, if you want to hack growth, uh, which we all want to do, and we're all trained to do, and nobody's got the answer, but I do think that humans are very tactile. I was actually reading something about the, the base of the brain stem that actually sees and touches things as being like very overwhelmed when it comes to a human being making decisions. I think that seeing is believing. So I would, my advice to any entrepreneurs, build less well and be able to 
service it and demonstrate it to potential customers and partners. Get it out uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not just like don't just rush it out, but do less well and, and make it tangible and accessible. Uh, you know, certainly in these large enterprise technology places are a little bit like an iceberg. There's a huge amount of engineering goes on under the water. Well, you have to iterate so quickly anyway, don't you? But it's how how do you surface it to make it uh, tangible and usable. So, you know, say if you've got an SDK with, you know, potential 300 integration points, do five really well, integrate the customer environment, show them it working, because once you've got five integration points working, once you've got five tangible, usable uh, points, you can then scale. Don't scale too quickly, because it could take so long and you're going to have to get people to believe in the potential as opposed to what you've actually built. So my hack would be actually uh, slow down on scope, focus on a tighter scope and do it well and make it tangible. When people see it, they'll believe that you can go wider. Perfect. Best piece of advice you've ever received? I met a guy at IBM who was, who worked Steve Jobs for many years. Nice. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of them retired now. This guy, we had dinner and you know, he said to me, uh, you know, vision without execution is delusion. Vision without execution is delusion. Yeah, and, and like I'm sure I've received a lot of great advice, like basic stuff, like don't put your hand in a fire. Uh, yeah. uh, but from a business perspective, I thought that was quite. It, it stayed with me. That it stayed with me for some reason because I think that you know the actual anybody can have exciting visions. The hard work and the detail and the people like that you need around you to help you with that. Is, is what makes or breaks the reality of delivering on a vision. Favorite album? Uh, at the moment, I mean like, what I absolutely love is Spotify. Uh, Spotify Talk Game Changer, and I love those like mood or context-based albums, oh, yeah. where it's like a playlist of context. So you're listening to tracks that you know, new music, new artists, uh, and, and I kind of love that mix of based on context. Not dissimilar to gospel's context based asset for some reason. <laughs> uh, no, 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 I kind of love the way spot I love the way music's changed. I actually still have uh, vinyl and I love the old like prodigy, uh, you know, Metallica. I was even listening to something Take California the other day or like the 90s dance tracks. I kinda of like that on vinyl. There's something very tangible and like touchy-feely about it, but Spotify just changed everything for me. It's phenomenally uh, context-based uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. Where will autonomous vehicles take off? I mean, there's a level of autonomy in most vehicles already. And, you know, ABS brakes, uh, like, you know, the uh, lane change technology, it's incrementally coming in. Ultimately, I believe autonomy is phased in as uh, people begin to trust it. So, like, you, you never worry about your ABS not working, and that's a digital Bosch-based system on most vehicles, I assume. That's pretty autonomous, autonomous. Uh, the next generation of radar cruise control is kind of here. You know, I have it all on my cars now, and I, I trust that, I'm comfortable with it. So I think it, it comes in iteratively, uh, and you know, I think it's kind of already here, and certainly, I will, I mean, I believe my next set of vehicles that I'll buy, when I come to the right time, they'll be electric, and we'll have autonomous functions, but everything's now software-based, everything's fly-by-wire, so they can increment these vehicles now in, in your period of ownership, which like, I love. The whole concept of buying a, a big metal plastic vehicle and then it being the same piece of capability for three, five years of life and then you change it for next generation, well, now everything's fly-by on software-based incremental updates, mm. you, know, uh, you know, and I think that means uh, you know, you're buying a you know, more of a transportation platform that can be updated and enhanced through software, uh, which for me is absolutely the right way to go. Will Gospel have any, anything to do with the data sharing between IoT? Yeah, Gospel, so we, we've done a lot of work in transportation. Wherever there's networks of devices where the ability to securely consume and share information across those devices, Gospel has a value proposition. We've actually done that with, uh, in, in the early stages, we worked with Transport Catapult, UK government, and it was about you know, uh, data sharing between uh, vehicles and uh, you know, traffic lights and kind of devices that are part of the uh, transportation network. I've got a question here from someone who I won't name. 
and it says, ask him about the starlings. The starlings, of course, yeah. So the uh, starlings do something called murmuration, yeah. which is an utterly beautiful, magnificent natural phenomena. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Isoid, on the, uh, not, not quite the murmuration, but this time of year in the UK is beautiful because the birds get ready to go to Africa, where it's warm and nice. Mm. But starlings do something called murmuration where they, they, they move as one, but there's thousands of birds. And I, I, I don't believe scientifically that they worked out exactly how there's this like common uh, neural network between all these you know, small little birds, but they operate in a beautiful uh, you know, uh, pattern in the sky. Whether that's the way humans perceive it, or they're actually talking to each other, or there's lots of incremental movements. Uh, there is, so I believe there's some form of trusted network between those birds that make them move like they do, uh, catching flies or whatever they do. And you know, I kind of saw that as a metaphor for some of the fundamentals of the technology we're building, where the bigger the network, the more trusted the network, the more safer you feel as part of that when you're, you know, when you have sensitive or secure information. Ian, thank you so much. Highly valuable, entertaining interview. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Let's hope we do it again soon.